All right, guys, are we ready to dive into Job again? With great, with great enthusiasm. Yes, bring it. Uh, guys, uh, we are well into our series on Job. In fact, um, this is our second to last in the series. So not, obviously not next week, because where are we, we going to be again next week? Charles Best, that's right. But the following week, we will land the plane on this series uh, walking through Job. Guys, if, you, if, it, if it is an aid to you, if it helps, you can go to cachurch.info and go under the sermons. And if you go under town, uh, town Center Sermons, you can find today's notes, all the scripture, and you can add notes and email it to you. Uh, email it to yourself. If it's not helpful, don't use it. If you find yourself then going on Instagram and other things, don't use it. If you need to turn off, if you need to turn off your phone and put it under your chair, you do that. Okay? But if it's helpful, go ahead and do that. So the story of Job, just, uh, just some reminders as we, as we walk through. The story of Job um, most likely is, is more of what we would call a thought experiment more than most likely an actual man who lived. Uh, it's found in what we call the wisdom literature of the Hebrew scriptures. It's a, it's a long poem and it has, it has different characters in it that are all meant to play a part and, and get us to struggle with the question is, who is God and who are we when we are walking through struggle? Who is God and who are we when we walk through struggle? And so like, like the parables that Jesus told, it, the, the main concern is not that it was true, but what are we trying to be taught through this story? The, the, the poem of, of Job is about a man who was the richest. He wasn't just rich. He was the richest in his community. Uh, he wasn't only righteous. He was the most righteous in his community. He was, he was loved. He was revered. He was wealthy in belongings as well as with family. He was wise. He was respected. And Job loses it all. And that's all Job knows. He doesn't know anything about a, a heavenly conversation. He just loses it all. His bank account is emptied. His cattle is dead. His family is lost. And Job is faced with the question, do I worship God because what I get out of it? Or do I worship God because it's wise to worship God and he is worthy to be praised? He's confused and all he wants is a conversation with the Almighty. That's what he thinks he wants. <laughs> is to get in the throne room of God and say, what is going on? I lived a righteous life. I did all the ritual I was supposed to do. This is not how things are supposed to work. And all he wants is to talk to God and get it cleared up. Job 13, 3. This is, this is his kind of plea throughout. He says, as for me, I would speak directly to the Almighty. I want to argue my case with God himself. And as we've seen over the past few weeks, Job's friends, they step in and they give him this advice for his situation. But it's all limited by a, a, a worldview of, of gods and, and a God that is petty, that is small, that if you just, you can, you can uh, he's malleable, you can manipulate God, if you just get the right calculation, he, he should give you stuff and you should get everything back. But Job actually never asks to get all this stuff back. He just wants a word with God. He just wants vindication. So all of the answers that his friends are giving him are, is, is not making sense to him. I'm going to invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. And we are going to read from, Ro, from Job 37, verses 14 to 24. Job 37, verses 14 to 24. This, these are the final words of, of one of his friends named Elihu. 
Elihu. It just, it just sounds like it should be sung. These are kind of Elihu's closing words just before Job steps into the last, last five chapters and gets a word with God Almighty. The word of God to us this morning. Pay attention to this, Job. Stop and consider the wonderful miracles of God. Do you know how God controls the storm and causes the lightning to flash from his clouds? Do you understand how he moves the clouds with wonderful perfection and skill? When you are sweltering in your clothes and the south wind dies down and everything is still, he makes the skies reflect the heat like a bronze mirror. Can you do that? So teach the rest of us what to say to God. We're too ignorant to make our own arguments. Should God be notified that I want to speak? Can people even speak when they are confused? We cannot look at the sun, for it shines brightly in the sky when the wind clears away the clouds. So also golden splendor comes from the mountain of God. He is clothed in dazzling splendor. We cannot imagine the power of the Almighty, but even though he is just and righteous, he does not destroy us. No wonder people everywhere fear him. All who are wise show him reverence. God of grace, I pray you would speak to us through this possibly most ancient of, of, of texts in scripture. And I pray you would open our hearts and minds to what you would want to say to us this morning about who you are and about who we are when we walk through struggle and trial. We pray this in your name. Amen. You guys can be seated. You, you get this sense throughout the book of Job that as his friends are talking to him, Job's head kind of keeps kind of rising above his three friends. And he's like, God, are you hearing this? These guys don't get it. Can I just, can I just talk to you, uh, please? Are you hearing what they're saying? They don't, they don't get it. They don't understand my suffering. Their, 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 their calculations are way off. Their prescription is way off. Their diagnosis is way off. And I just want to be able to talk to you. And so as, as a reader in, in the ancient world, if you, were, if you were listening to the story when it was passed on orally or, 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 or reading the story, at this point in the story, after he's heard his first three friends, the, the, the audience would be on the edge of their seat. As he keeps going, I just want to talk to you. I just want to talk to you. I've got complaints. I want to talk to you. It's just, you've heard everything. Job's given his complaint, his final complaint. And you're just waiting. He's like, he's just about to go into the throne room of God. And then Elihu steps in. Um, uh, can I say something too? Uh, just before you go into the throne room, I want to talk to you as well. Elihu steps in and, 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 and all, of the, all of Job's other friends, at least, you know, they did it in little snippets. Elihu takes four chapters. <laughs> And just keeps, keeps talking. And it's quite an entrance, I'll tell you. It's quite an entrance, this guy. In chapter 32, he says this, starting at verse 6. He says, um, he said, I am young and you are old. He's talking about all the other friends that have already spoken to Job. So I held back from telling you what I think. I thought those who are older should speak, for wisdom comes from age. But there is a spirit within people, the breath of the Almighty within them. That makes them intelligent. Sometimes the elders are not wise. Sometimes the aged do not understand justice. So listen to me and let me tell you what I think. I have waited all this time listening very carefully to your arguments, listening to you grope for words. I have listened, but not one of you has refuted Job or answered his arguments. And don't tell me he is too wise for us. Only God can convince him. If Job had been arguing with me, I would not answer with your kind of logic. 
You sit there baffled with nothing more to say. Should I continue to wait now that you are silent? Must I also remain silent? No, I will say my piece. I will speak my mind for I'm full of pent up words and the spirit within me urges me on. I am like a cask of wine without a vent, like a new wineskin ready to burst. I must speak to find relief. So let me give my answers. I won't play favorites or try to flatter anyone. For if I tried flattery, my creator would soon destroy me. Wow, what a guy. (laughs) Thinks kind of highly of himself. Not a lot of humility, it seems. He's like, listen, I, I, I've, I've been patient. I thought, these guys are wise. They'll know what's going on. But apparently, just the, it's not just age that gives you wisdom. You need to have more than that. In verse 8, he says, there's a spirit of wisdom that does not necessarily come with age. It's, it's the breath of God in us. It's this welcoming the breath of God in us. And then in verse 18, he says, oh, and by the way, I have that breath. I have that spirit within me. Which is also, by the way, he, the language he's using is a lot of the way that the, the prophets were described. That the spirit of God was within them, that it was bubbling up and they had to let it out. So he's not just saying, I've got some advice. He's saying, I've got, I've got the spirit of God within me and I'm ready to throw this out to you. So in a moment of, of explaining the lack of in, integrity in Job, Elihu explains that, that he's speaking the words of God himself. In verse 7 he says, of 34, he says, Tell me, has there ever been a man like Job with his thirst for irreverent talk? Notice everyone else was a little bit more, had a bit more flattery for Job. He chooses evil people as companions. And all the old guys are going, what? He spends his time with wicked men. He has even said, why waste time trying to please God? Saying, Job, you, you've given up on God just because life got difficult. Listen to me. You have, understand, you have understanding. Everyone knows that God doesn't sin. The Almighty can do no wrong. He repays people according to their deeds. He treats people as they deserve. Truly, God will, will not do wrong. The Almighty will not twist justice. Did someone else put the world in his care? Who set the whole world in place? If God were to take back his spirit and withdraw his breath, all life would cease and all humanity would turn again to dust. There's a lot of truth in what he's saying. He might be coming, kind of playing his, his young cards, his youth cards, and, and I'm going to bring in a new kind of wisdom. And he gets us closer. He gets us closer to the throne room of God. But what he's saying is, Job, there's a proper, proce- there's a, there's a proper um, posture of complaint. You need to have posture when you come before the Almighty. And that, that might be a question we need to ask ourselves this morning. What is our posture before God when we suffer? What is our posture before God when we suffer? We are not above God. Joe, be careful where you place yourself in this conversation. <laughs> this is not peer-to-peer. Saying God, God does the right thing, Job. He's a God of justice. Be careful the way you, you talk to him. You've been questioning whether or not God is being fair, but what do you even know of fair? From your limited understanding, Job, what, how do you understand fair? The God who sustains all things, he, he can't be in, on trial for injustice. He is justice. Justice is not something that God follows or, or adheres to. Justice itself finds its very definition in how closely it matches the character of God. So can we question how life goes from the very one who sustains life? So he said, Job, don't bite the hand who feeds you. So Elihu here is defending the justice of God. He says, Job, God doesn't have to answer you. 
Yeah, I mean, it's good that you're going, you're going into his throne room here, that you want to have a conversation with him, but you, you know that God doesn't owe you anything, right? You know that, right? Job 34, verse 31 to 37. Why don't people say to God, I have sinned, but I will sin no more. See, that's the posture, Job. Or I don't know what evil I have done. Tell me, if I've done wrong, I will stop at once. Must God tailor his justice to your demands? It'd be nice. But you've rejected him. The choice is yours, not mine. Go ahead, share your wisdom with us. After all, bright people will tell me and wise people will hear me say, Job speaks out of ignorance. His words lack insight. How can they not? How can our words not lack insight? Job, you deserve the maximum penalty for the wicked way you've talked. For you have added rebellion to your sin. You show no respect. And you speak many angry words against God. See, Job can't win. Because in the first half of Job, all his friends were saying, you must have done some sin in the past, and that's why God's doing it to you. And Elihu comes, goes, you might not have done the sin in the past, but you're sure sinning now. Job's in the middle going, what? It's between a rock and a hard place. Stop talking about how righteous you are, Job. You're not above God. So in the, in the, in the, the first chapters of Job, you have his friends going, you've sinned. No, I haven't. I'm righteous. Job, just think about it. You mu- Just think harder. Dig deeper. You must have sinned. I swear, I did nothing wrong. Job, you must have done something wrong. I didn't. Job, man, you sure talk about how good you are. <laughs> you ever had those conversations? Why are you angry? I'm not angry. You seem angry. Why are you angry? I'm not angry. You seem, I'm not angry. Well, then why are you raising your voice? <laughs> it seems like Job is kind of in that, that situation here. He's defending himself, defending himself. Man, you sure talk highly about yourself, Job. My goodness. Job, this is an opportunity for you, Elihu is saying. Does, does God have to run his creation according to our demands? Just, Job, you need to realize this, that suffering, whatever it's cause, it can be a tool of maturity and growth. And, and you're not making it right now, Job. But it can be a tool for maturity and growth. And by the way, we're never done. We're never done, Job. You might, have, you might have had your life all together, but there's still some work that the Almighty can do on you. I mean, we get this, don't we? There are news stories we, we hear, sadly, every day. There are Instagram posts every day, uh, whether it be a political leader or a church leader that could have used more wisdom. <laughs> yeah. In Job 29, <laughs> Job reminisces uh, that, that he seemingly had it all. That everyone wanted to listen to him. Job 29 verse 21. It says, everyone used to listen to my advice. They were silent as they waited for me to speak. And after I spoke, they had nothing to add for my counsel satisfied them. They longed for me to speak as people long for rain. They drank my words like a refreshing spring. This is how I talk after I have a meal with my family. When they were discouraged, I smiled at them. My look of approval was precious to them. Like a chief, I told them what to do. I lived like a king among his troops and comforted those who mourned. He used to comfort those who mourned. I'm not sure how accurate Job's (laughs) appraisal or or his view of his earlier circumstances were. Maybe they were accurate. Accurate. Maybe they, they weren't. But how much more will people listen to Job now? If, as Job walks through this fire, as he's, as, he's, as he's gone through this trial, walking with a limp, yes, but somehow with more strength as well. That's always been 
one of God's great tools to make great leaders. Again, whether it be politically throughout scripture, whether it be in the history of the church, many of the great leaders have been those who have walked with limps and have walked through trial by fire. In 1 Corinthians 1, 8-9, the Apostle Paul, some of you might know him as St. Paul, a church planner in the early church, he, he wrote these words to the church in Corinth. He says, We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble that we went through in the province of Asia while we were doing ministry. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. If you're wondering how God protects us from immaturity, that's it. If you're wondering how God protects us from immaturity, James talks about it as well in James 1. James chapter 1 verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. If it's never tested, it never has a chance to grow. We've talked about that before. The fruits of the Spirit do not grow in solitude. They grow in community. They grow when we walk through difficulty. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Notice that. God's version of perfection and completeness is brought about through brokenness. Is that not the model of the cross? Is that not where you and I find our complete hope, our complete joy, our complete identity, our fullest humanity? Is it not found through the suffering of Christ? And as we identify our stories with him. See, we live in a culture now that believes that any sort of, that, any, that, that we can have strength outside of suffering. In fact, that any suffering is actually an affront to our growth and maturity and flourishing. That, this is the first generation, by the way, that's thought that. Throughout the history of the world, it's been believed that, that it's things pushing up against us that actually builds us and makes us stronger and better human beings. And that may be what the, the story of Job, the thought experiment of Job is meant to prepare us for. To, to, to not look at our suffering when it comes as the action of, of, a, of a petty God who's upset with us and, and see it just possibly as the very means of our strengthening and our maturity. Making us better friends, making us better spouses, better parents, better people for the long haul. I, I wrote it like this. It's like resistance training for the body. The trials we face at work, in our relationships, financially, even emotionally, physically, they are an opportunity for our spiritual growth. See, the default is to say that, that God must not be paying attention or he must not be caring. That's why this stuff is happening. That's, that's kind of where, where Job is falling in the middle of the book. In Job 35, verses 13 to 16, it says, But it's wrong to say that God doesn't listen, to say the Almighty isn't concerned. You say you can't see him, but he will bring justice if you will only wait. You say he does not respond to sinners with anger and is not greatly concerned about wickedness. Job's looking around and saying, listen, all these things are happening. These people are doing bad things. Nothing's happening to them. I'm living a righteous life and stop paying attention to me, God. Go pay attention to those guys. But you're talking nonsense, Job. You have spoken like a fool. 
they're saying, Job, Job, you need to widen your vision here a little bit. And we, we can all work on this. See, let, let's take a, another step away from the, the petty gods that these, your old three friends believe in, that, that these guys worship. Because he's working justice on a scale that you cannot fathom. That, yeah, it takes patience. That, yeah, it takes trust. But do you really want a God who doles out blessing and curse for every good and bad thing that we do? I don't think that's what you want, Job. I think you want a, a, a larger version of God than that. Who can stand under that version of God? The, the, and, and don't many people live their Christian life that way? The, the Christian life where I, today was a good Christian day because I, I, I did a good thing. And I did well. I didn't make a lot of mistakes. Today, my Christianity was not so good because I made a few mistakes. Well, that's not, that's not new life. That's, that's religion. That's, that's our, our identity built again on what we can pull off. Or do you want to worship a God of might and power who holds all creation together by his hands and holds your salvation and future together by his hands? Job, what kind of view of God are you going to have? The one who gives an answer for every single question or the one who sustains you in the midst of every question? You need to ask yourself that question, Job. Who am I, whatever situation I might find myself in, because of who God is? Job 37, 23 to 24, this is how Elihu kind of ends his, his, his last statement. He says, we cannot imagine the power of the Almighty. But even though he is just and righteous, he does not destroy us. See, that, remember we talked about that's what the actual idea of the fear of God is. That he has the power, but his default is to love and sustain us. No wonder people everywhere fear him or revere him. All who are wise show him reverence. Job, we may not know the why, but clinging to him in our confusion is the wisest thing we can do. Don't, don't run away from him, Job. Run towards him. See, when we lack vision, the wisest thing we can do is cling more tightly to him who sees all things. Who has the greatest vision? You guys remember these guys? You guys know who those guys are? Those are the wild boars. Soccer team from Thailand. You guys remember, this is, I think, June 2018. These guys went for a hike with their coach, made their way into a cave, two miles, three miles into a cave, two miles, I think, into a cave, and when they were in there, the floodwaters rose up and they found themselves lost in a dark, cold cave with no way out. They were in there for nine days in darkness, utter darkness. They couldn't even see each other. Many of us haven't even experienced that kind of darkness. Imagine the fear that must go through you as you, as you wonder when, when and if help can come with no communication from the outside and imagine what it must have felt like when that light came up out of the water nine days in where all of a sudden they were able to see themselves better and they had greater clarity to see each other as this British diver Rick Stanton emerged from the water asked how many there were it took eight more days before they were actually taken out of the cave from knowing salvation was coming 
to actually getting out of the cave. And to get out of the cave, it wasn't, okay, guys, this is the way, go. They were tethered to divers, attached to divers, because there was going to be a lot of times in that, in that cave. Now, in the second half, they actually um, gave them some medication to help them. But in the first half, they needed to be awake. And as they're going through tight spaces and dark spaces, first of all, I'll tell you, when the diver showed up and he said, this is, this is how it's going to work. This is how we're going to get out. None of the boys said, oh, we'll wait till someone else comes. They all said, okay, <laughs> you're, the, you're our way out. You're our way. You have to tether us to divers. We'll do it. And so as they came to darker areas and tighter areas and and cold areas, do you think that their idea was to get away from the diver? No, it was to cling in closer and make sure that that tether was holding. That's where their salvation was. I don't know where this curve's going. I can't even see a thing, but I'm going to trust the person in front of me. Who knows? That's where my salvation will come from. They were their only option. They didn't have the wisdom to do it themselves. They didn't have the wisdom to know the way out. The wisest thing they could do was grasp strongly to one of their saviors. The Bible has always been very clear. Jesus was clear that the Christian faith is not a smooth air balloon ride up up into the blue sky. It's more like a cave. And do not loosen that tether when it gets dark. Don't loosen that tether when it gets cold. Jesus made it clear, John 16, I have told you all this so that you may have peace, where? In me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Who has overcome the world? Jesus has overcome the world. See, we look at at the work of of someone else to see the the verification that God is in control of our lives. We look to Christ and his, his life, death, and resurrection to know that our future is taken care of. We look at the historical fact of the life, death, and resurrection as the defining moment of our salvation, now and in the future. It is in Christ that all of our suffering finds its proper place. That's why Paul could say in Philippians 1.6, I'm certain that God who began the good work in you, why was he certain? Because he knew the risen Christ. I am certain that he who began a good work in you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Who will continue it? He will continue it. See, it's not just the strength of our faith that sustains us. It's the object of our faith that sustains us. So will our faith be limited to circumstance? If our faith is limited to circumstance, we will find ourselves stuck in dark, dank caves. Will it be steered by a vision of Christianity that's based on our good and bad days? If so, we will find ourselves in dark, cold caves. Or will it be placed in the person and work of Christ who plunged himself into our darkness to save us? Paul goes on in Philippians 2, 6 to 11. One of my favorite bits of scripture. Although he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Although he was a diver outside the cave, he didn't say, you know, it's warm out here and there's a lot of light. I'm going to stay here. He went in. 
Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, gave him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every interview you've ever seen with those boys, they will talk about the divers that came in and saved them. Every time you and I gather here on a Sunday... We are declaring our love and our joy and our affection for the one who saved us. See, the beautiful thing is this. Like a child clinging to a diver in the dark, those who cling to Christ will get to the end. It'll be dark at times. That's not a surprise, Jesus told us. It will be cold at times. That's promised. But those children in the cave, like those children in the cave, that that is an opportunity for us to grab even tighter to the tether that holds us to our Savior and our, our reliance on the one who holds all things together by his word and has already been through the cave, through death, and came out the other side. That's who we're tethered to. That is where life is found, and that's where comfort and trust is found in the middle of the cave and in the middle of the suffering that you and I find ourselves. To him be all glory and praise from now until the day he brings all of those things to completion. One of the ways we here as a church cling to Christ and remind ourselves that our hope is found in him And we remember what he did to purchase our salvation and that he will return one day to to bring it to its completion is through communion. When we take communion together, we're reminded of the story that if you are a Christ follower, which basically means spiritually you've tethered yourself to Christ and trust him. If that's you, then when we take communion, we're remembering what Christ did for us. The historical event that we can point out the time on a calendar, we can point to a place on the map. It's a historical fact that changed all of history. That that is where we find our identity. If that's you, then, then you're invited to take part in this communion. And that's what we do. We remember the past, but we also eat it celebrating the future that is to come. Because as Paul reminds us, he will bring all things to completion. As Jesus reminds us when he, when he introduced communion to his disciples, that they will eat it until he returns and we will eat this meal together. This is practice for eating this meal when you're going to sit across the table from your Savior. And so how we do communion here is we're going to have the servers come up. We'll have gluten-free on this side for those of you who need it, but anyone can do that. We'll have regular bread over here. And we're going to take the bread. And Jesus said, whenever you you eat bread together, I want you to remember that this bread represents my body that I gave freely for you. Nobody took Jesus' life from him. He gave it freely as a punishment for the sins of the world. And then he took the cup at the end of the meal. And he said, I want you to remember when when you drink this cup together, that this cup represents my blood that was spilled as a payment for the sins of many. And so we remember, but we also, as, as we remember through, through, through communion, we're also declaring the defeat of sin and death 
through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen?